Uh, we're back. We're live. We're talking about Hong Kong today with Carl Baker, Senior Advisor to Pacific Forum. Um, and um, there's lots to discuss about Hong Kong. It's, it, you know, it didn't just close up and go away and disappear after, after the uh, new security uh, law, um, but it did change. And uh, COVID has changed it further. Um, and the question before the House is, how does this affect its connections um, as a place to connect East and West, which we always loved it for that? But query, is that still the case? Carl Baker, thank you so much for coming down. Yeah, thanks, Jay. Uh, it's, a, it's always a pleasure to talk about uh, places in the world. And Hong Kong is certainly uh, has always been sort of a almost a nostalgic place for, for some people, I think, because it, it always was unique in the sense that it, it connects East and West. And, I, you know, I think it, it still it still does and it still will. I think I think, uh, you know, Part of part of the nostalgia, of course, is is the old colonial Hong Kong, which uh, had its own problems, and and you know the, the British didn't exactly uh, leave it in uh, in in great shape when it handed it over back in ninety uh, seven. So you know I think uh, certainly Hong Kong is changing, and you know the, and the dynamics are are certainly making it much more of a Chinese city, uh, but it's still a place to connect. Uh, you know, I found an interesting quote uh, from from uh, your friend Jerome Cohen, and I'll start with that. He said, "This dramatic transformation will not be the end of Hong Kong as a global financial hub, as it has already begun to boost economic integration with mainland China, but it is surely the death of democratic hopes of most of its 7.5 million people." And I think that that that's probably where where the nostalgia comes in is, you know, Hong Kong was always going to be this 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 beachhead of, de of democracy in China. And, you know, with with the recent events, I think uh, Jerome and the rest of us see that that's probably not going to happen, that it is going to become much more of a city controlled by Beijing. And I think that's what we really see. Uh, in in the nostalgia is that it's becoming a Chinese city, and and what's happening is it's still a, it's still a financial hub, but the nature of the financial hub is changing, that it's becoming a, a financial hub that focuses on China, and so the the big banks are are shifting their people the, the the people are leaving some some people are leaving the regional office the regional it's not so much a regional headquarters anymore as it's becoming a an office that does wealth management for Chinese. Mm, that's the other direction. Now, um, I, I've been to uh, Hong Kong a couple of times and uh, last time I was there, uh, I went to a banquet. Of course, you gotta have banquets in Hong Kong, you know, Chinese banquets, right around this time of year, right? Xin Yan Kuai Le, Kong Yi Fa Choi. And I was sitting next to a guy who what worked for some kind of uh, venture capital firm, capital firm, capitalistic firm. And he said mm -hmm. his job was to uh, put the money together with the opportunities in mainland China. So he was funding these projects and he was making a lot of money because they needed the investment in China and he had it. And Hong Kong was a portal 
at least at that that time. This was um, you know maybe 10, 15 years ago. That's all it was. Yeah. Uh, it was a portal to all this investment money, and and it was a model that was enviable. It, it was that connection with East and West. The money was from the West. And the projects were in the east in mainland China. Mm-hmm. Um, so now um, they still have the skill. Uh, a lot of these guys, it was still there. I'm not sure they're all still there. I, from what you say, it sounds like some of them are not there anymore. They, they went to the UK already. Um, but the ones who were still there are actually very skilled and can manage the money of the, mm, what do you want to call it, upper middle class or mm-hmm. upper upper class from China. That's such an interesting turnaround. Yeah, yeah, and, and it went fairly fast, I think, you know, and, and certainly, you know, the post, post-1997, I think that that, sh- that shift was occurring, but it, it's certainly sped up in the last, in the last couple of years where, where, like I said, what's happening is not only are the managers focusing on Chinese wealth management, but they're becoming Chinese, you know, so, so the, the Europeans are still there. There's, uh, you know, roughly, you know, 300, 300,000 foreigners that still live in, in Hong Kong. So it's not, it's not a, a shrinking expat population. Uh, well, it is shrinking, but it's not, it's not a shriveling one, I guess I should say. It's, there's, they're still there. <laughs> the but, difference. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's shrinking, but not shriveling. <laughs> You know, because but they're but they're they're focusing on different things. The, the the needs are different, and you know, and and we have to be honest with ourselves that you know, old Hong Kong wasn't wasn't this this uh, idyllic place. There were problems there. You know, in, in the early in the early post-war era, you know, post post Japan, the fifties and sixties, it was full of immigrants living in little hovels, uh, manufacturing cheap trinkets. You know, it was sort of Japan before before Japan became Japan, and you know, and that and that sort of shifted over over time as it became expensive, and they started building high rises for all these immigrants, you know, and and but it was still it was still a place that that was was significant, but it was shifting to the to the financial hub, you know, and so it really wasn't until the seventies and and the eighties that it became known as as the financial hub of of pushing. Uh, money into China. And, and like you say, now it's kind of shifted and it's taking money out of China, finding finding ways to invest Chinese money in different parts of the world. So it's yeah. still East meets West. It's just each East meets West with a with an Eastern focus rather than a Western focus looking in. So it's it's really it's kind of a change in direction, I guess. But sure, you're right. You know, um, years ago, not too many years, but some years ago, if you looked at Hong Kong, um, you know, the people were not wealthy. I mean, there were financial institutions and successful executives and all that, money managers um, involved, you know, with following the money. But the ordinary citizen didn't have a lot of money, and he certainly didn't have a lot of room. You know, even in the papers today, they talk about people who are quarantined in their buildings, which have thousands of units in a given building. And the units, and I've heard this before, are like less than 300 square feet. And the whole family lives in 300 square feet. Now that is hard to take. Um, And and, and you know, it explains, uh, somebody told me this and I I accept it. It explains in large part the, you know, the umbrella movement and the um, the frustration that people who are cramped in these little apartments have 
and why it's important that they get out on the street and express themselves is because they really don't like their lives of cramped apartments with not a lot of money. You know, Hong Kong offers still today offers a certain amount of vitality and you know, shopping and walking and you know getting out there. Although, I mean, with the COVID, we should talk about that. The COVID has dampened all of that, and, and so has the national security law. But, but the you know the the, the personality of Hong Kong very vital, very feisty, um, and so that's the way people express themselves. They got out of their little tiny apartments and into the street. Yeah, and, and it was, I mean, it was known as the protest capital of Asia, right? I mean, even even more so than, than Seoul and uh, and, and uh, the, Tokyo back in the day. And so, yeah, and, you know, and that's, you know, and that's what the national, this, this national security law that was passed in June of 2020 has, has certainly accelerated the pace of change. And uh, like, I mean, the last time I was there was in, in 2019, just really before the the big riot started in in the summer of 2019 and you know and you could feel that that there there was this this uh, sentiment uh, among the people that they weren't happy you know that that the conditions weren't weren't very satisfactory because of the like you say because of the uh, of the of the the the, the number of people the, the number of people in Hong Kong is compared to other Asian cities is is just it, you felt crushed at times, you know, that it was so crowded. The high rises are really tall high rises. They're not, you know, they're not 40 stories, they're 70 stories and they're packed in with, in top of each other. And like you say, the apartments are small. And, the, and so there was this sense of dissatisfaction. And then of course, you know, in 2019, uh, you knew something had to happen. The, the, the Chinese simply couldn't, couldn't tolerate the, these protests without doing something, and so you now you have the the national security law, and and you know what the national security law really does is is it it outlaws dissent, and so the democracy advocates have been put in jail, you know, by the thousands. Uh, the the open open media is more or less gone. Apple Apple newspaper has gone the way of uh, of. Uh, the, the dodo bird, I guess, because well, like Jimmy Lai, the, 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 the founder of uh, Apple Media, he's been in jail for a year yeah. um, for a First Amendment violation. I mean, first for a prosecution which violates his free speech. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, free free speech is basically is basically gone. And, you know, and, and there's really no way to to control it. You know, and, that, and, you know, what made Hong Kong vital, of course, for the for the financing industry is is the fact that it had British law and and you know and that was supposed to be maintained at least until 2047 you know and that's that's now gone I think you 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 really don't have uh, a, a very uh, free legal system anymore you know they, they well because everything gets tied to national security and and the judges well the judges are still there to to adjudicate to adjudicate uh, uh civil civil law the fact is is that everything can get pushed into national security law and the national security law is there there's only a select number of judges who are qualified and those and those qualifications are based on beijing's criteria and and you know it's not it's not really a, a a free legal system anymore in that sense, and and so what's what's happening is everything gets pushed as I say everything gets pushed into under the rubric of, of the national security law, and there's and there's no real openness about the about the trials or anything. 
So, so in that sense, you know, the, the legal freedoms have, have essentially disappeared, and they're not they're not coming back. The, the Chinese aren't aren't going to 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 remove those restrictions anytime soon. Yeah, can you imagine how how you would feel if you were a protester, a student, for example, a protester in all those umbrella movement type protests uh, in only what, two years ago, and now you're in trouble. And if you get arrested for participating in a protest or any kind of dissent, there's there's essentially no bail. Um, you you right. you go to jail and you go to jail right now, pending trial, and you you sit in jail until your trial, which could be a while. Uh, furthermore, at the this is very this really struck me at the bail hearing, which is usually denied now these mm -hmm. days. Mm -hmm. um, the press is not permitted to cover that. <laughs> there's there's no coverage of it because because it's 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 invisible. They want it the way they want it to be invisible, and so and so yeah, the, the basic freedoms of, of of expression, you know, of, of uh, they're gone. They're, and and you know they've taken down they've taken down the the monuments to the to the Tiananmen Square movement and they've taken down any any reference to to Lady Liberty, you know and, and so they they've removed all the all the symbols associated with the democracy movement and you know and and the the the, the last election uh, they they reported there was like a thirty five percent turnout so the, the the people that are are still there have said well. Okay, we we realize that we're not we're not going to get to choose our legislatures. Yeah. That's and, that's a very bad statement that they don't want to vote because they don't they don't think they have any control over the government. Yeah. Well, you know, and again, this goes back, you know, let's let's blame the British because I like to do that. Uh, <laughs> you know, the uh, they need to be blamed. Well, I mean the British, the British, you know. Did the did the agreement in in nineteen what nineteen eighty four, you know, to do the turnover in ninety seven, and only in nineteen ninety two did Governor Patton have the brilliant idea of saying, you know, we should probably introduce democracy before we turn this thing over, you know, and of course then the Chinese said, no, oh, wait a minute, this is what, that's not what we agreed to in nineteen eighty four, you know, and and so it never went anywhere. So so you know, basically, there there never was. A real freedom of of, uh, of of voter choice in in Hong Kong prior to the turnover. So you know, so so the the British have a little bit of responsibility here for not being more more aggressive in trying to promote democracy when when it was an open system that the British controlled. Yeah, well, as you say, a lot of things have, have fallen by the wayside. A lot of those guarantees, civil liberties, what have you, it's really a, a sad situation. You can imagine how people feel. You know, for a long time, I was considering taking a subscription out uh, to the South China Morning Post, yeah, Hong Kong which was South a statement of free speech in Hong Kong. Um, would would yeah, you do and, that today, Carl? Uh, I, read, I read South China Morning Post. Uh, you know they, they they actually don't even charge for their uh, for their subscriptions like New York Times and Washington Post do. You can you can read. I've never run I've never run across a limit for South China Morning Post, and so I think uh, I, I think I do read it. Well, okay, <laughs> and, all right. You know, I should take a page out of your book, but yeah. literally. But but what what about its credibility in a, in a place where there is no freedom of the press? It, you know, it does it does a fairly good job of reporting the news, uh, and it 
it, it, it doesn't do anything controversial, obviously, because it wants to stay open. But uh, you know, but it does it does report regional news and it does report uh, on on uh, what's happening in Hong Kong. Uh, so you know, I mean, it's better than nothing. It, it's uh, it's still it's still a newspaper. It's still it still has some some. Uh, opinion pieces that get written, but of course, it's very careful to to avoid uh, getting crossways with uh, with Beijing. Yeah. So I guess um, you know, I, to me, I think the the central question we're halfway through our discussion here is how all of this affects the the vitality that we have seen in Hong Kong. It has been a very vital city, a crossroads, uh, as you said, a, a connection between East and West. So if I give you a population, and we need to talk about how COVID has exacerbated this, yeah. uh, and, the, and the PRC's reaction to COVID, which is really draconian. Um, so, you know, the people are being squashed. The people who had all that vitality are being squashed. The population, what does it say, 7.5 million, um, I'm sure most of them are unhappy, uh, except for a few fellows making money. Um, but the average person is stuck in his place, his house. He doesn't have money. Um, he can't go to work. Um, he's really, really unhappy. And, and so you get a pale of unhappiness. And this is especially relevant now in early February because it's Chinese New Year, a time for celebration. Mm -hmm. and all these people and all the newspapers say the same thing. They're so unhappy about everything. So yeah. query, but, but, how does that affect commerce? Yeah, it, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, obviously not being able to visit Hong Kong, you can't you can't really get a sense of, of what common people feel like or how they're how they're how they're reacting because you, you you can't read about it because it's not an open media. So you don't you don't really have a good sense of how, how the common people feel. Uh, you know, I mean, if you look at numbers. You know, there's uh, they estimate the British estimate that you know the British national overseas passports. Uh, they opened that up in late 2020 as a way to to give people the opportunity to move out. Uh, they they estimate that by the by the end of 2021, they thought there would probably be roughly 123,000 people who have taken the the British national overseas passport route to to move to uh, to uh, to the UK. Uh, the European Union, you know, has opened up uh, political refugees from Hong Kong. Canada has done the same. So, so there's some outlet, you know, and and the numbers are in the, like I say, the hundreds of thousands. The the British, the UK has said, you know, at worst case or worst case at at the extreme case, they could get a million people that move out in the next five years under the British national overseas passport uh, system. You know, so so there's, uh, you know, there there is an outward movement of of actual Hong Kong people. You know, and the other the other measure that you can look at is uh, I saw an article that talks about uh, the the drop in enrollment in the prestigious private schools. You know, where obviously the wealthy are are leaving in in big numbers, like they did, you know, prior to 1997, uh, and and the indication that they're staying. You know, is there's they have this this mandatory provident 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 fund, that's basically their retirement system, and and you can only draw your money out if you say you're never coming back, and the numbers of people who have done that has gone up. So the the wealthy, some of the wealthy are leaving. So it's not you know it's not everything is not wonderful for them either. They see that there's there's uh, an opportunity to leave and they're taking it. 
you know, when you look at the expats, uh, you know, like I said, there's still a big expat community. But what what everybody's talking about is, as you say, with COVID, uh, people don't want to work in Hong Kong because you can't leave. You, I mean, there's no there's no way for if you're a regional bank. If you're if you're if you're a regional center for a big bank, you can't go out of the country because you, you have to come back. You, you quarantine in basically a prison for 14 for, for 14 days. They just reduced it from 30 days. You know, so that's not practical. So you, you, you really can't you really can't run a business like that or, or a regional headquarters like that. So, you know, so I think, you know, and, and so now they're having trouble filling these these. Uh, high high positions uh, in these in these financial institutions because people don't want to go. Obviously, if you have a family outside of Hong Kong, you don't want to go, and you don't want to subject your family to this kind of this kind of, uh, of, of system that doesn't allow you to move about. Yeah, it's hard, and so you know we don't we don't know that the total effect yet is a lot of things in the world are building under the hood, you know, and yeah. we'll have to take a look back in a year or two and see how they were affected by COVID and other things. But you know, it seems to me that what was probably brewing under the hood is a general dissatisfaction among the ex expat community. Uh, Got to get out of here. Got to go yeah. somewhere else. Now, one thing is very interesting, I think, is that although China, you know, suppresses uh, civil liberties and suppresses freedom in all ways on the mainland, you know, in a funny way, they're tougher on Hong Kong <laughs> than they are in mainland China. And I just wonder, you know, whether any any person who was frustrated with Hong Kong would say, hmm, I think I'll go to Shanghai. They do plenty of international business. Why don't I go there? I can make some money and have a good lifestyle, become a millionaire, whatnot. Is this happening? I, 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 there's no evidence that I've seen that suggests that's happening. Uh, you know, I think that, that, that the, the Chinese companies are moving into Hong Kong. I, I mean, you know, so, so they're able to recruit people to move into Hong Kong. So, you know, uh, if, that's, if that's any indication, you know, what, what, I've, what I've seen is that what, what's happening is as the, as the multinationals leave, the Chinese companies are moving in, filling in behind them taking taking the opportunity to move to Hong Kong because I guess you know there is still some more flexibility in in the the uh, economy of Hong Kong to to move money in and out of Hong Kong as opposed to if you're in Shanghai you know you're very limited in how you can how you can move money around and so I think the 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 Chinese have sort of kept some some legal, structures open enough to to allow more flexibility in in currency movement in and out of the in and out of the country well, the ones who are leaving of course they can go to uh, uk i although i think the numbers have been constrained recently uh, there's not as many billets open as used to be i'm not in, sure what the in, number in the is. uk yeah no uh, the, the, the uk has said they'll take three million people Oh, okay. Well, I, I guess that that's a substantial. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they don't they don't anticipate getting close to that. The Chinese allow the, the the Chinese government allow the Hong Kongers to go. Well, you know, it, yeah, it's I certainly not not common Hong Kongers. I think I think there's a there's a wealth there's there's a wealth barrier put up that would would not allow it. I think it would it's 
fairly expensive to get the permission from the British and the, and then to to get the the permission from the from the Chinese or from the Hong Kong government. So if I was a multinational or if I was a business a businessman, um, you know, looking to um, you know thrive in my business despite the problems in Hong Kong, I would consider other ports in Asia. I would consider Singapore. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I would imagine a lot of them are going to Singapore because Singapore is, I don't know if you'd call it a democracy in the fullest extent, but it's a, it's a place with a quality of life. It's, it certainly has the quality of life. And yeah, that, that's, where the, that's a lot of where the, the financial regional centers are moving to is, is, uh, is from Hong Kong into, into Singapore. Another interesting fact, of course, is you know, competition for the regional transportation hub between Hong Kong and Singapore. So some, some numbers just to, to give you a, a sense of what's happened is Singapore is pushing hard, you know, to, to reopen, to make Changi Airport the, the, the regional hub. And the numbers are that in 2019, Changi processed 19 million passengers. Last year, it was 3.5 million, but they were happy because they were ahead of Hong Kong. <laughs> so so think, about, think about the shift that's happened there. And, and so what, what's happening is, is yes, the, the regional banks are, are moving their regional headquarters out and, and primarily to, to Singapore, some to, some to Tokyo, some to, to Seoul, some to Taipei. But for the most part, Singapore seems to have the, the, winning, the, the winning hand there, and partly because Southeast Asia is, is sort of the dynamic area these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, and others others have done the same thing. I think uh, that Singapore looks more attractive. Uh, you know, so if, I, you know, if we look back and we see the vitality, the and the international connection of Hong Kong, and the fabulous restaurants, I might add that too. Yeah. and you know, all the things to do, um, and all the shopping, oh, shopping in every direction for miles. Nathan Road comes comes to mind. That's right. You know that that is really subdued now, and it, it isn't going to come back. And you have you have multinationals who you know the family doesn't want to be there, and they hate to see what's happening, and they're you know they're they're down about it just the way the Hong Kongers are down, mm-hmm. and so they're leaving. And as I said before, I, I believe that under the rock, when you turn the rock over, there are things processes happening socially. You know, in, in in civil society that are changing, we agree that changing Hong Kong forever and it's not going to come back. There's going to be something different. It's going to be a Chinese city. Okay. Um, so my question is, and just wondering about this, is this has got to have an effect on global money moving? It's got to have an effect, as you say, on Southeast Asia, because it was a it was a it was a pivot point for the whole community and for the connection of Europe and Asia. And now it isn't really, not as no. much. No. And so the, the, the question is, how? Does, this is a hard question, Carl. I'm sorry for this question. <laughs> how does this change the, the calculus for the development of Asia? Well, I think it, I think it does shift it away from, from Hong Kong, uh, you know, and, and it, it shifts it into the capitals in Southeast Asia. And, and, you know, I think you, you basically, you almost have a more multipolar financial system, I guess, where, where you know, uh, Tokyo is much more willing to go directly into, 
into uh, Southeast Asia. China is going to have to figure out how to do that, you know, and you, you begin to bypass Hong Kong for that for that purpose. You know, and I think that's that's what really happens is Hong Kong, it still becomes a financial hub, but it becomes a financial hub for Chinese money moving out rather than money moving into China. And, and so, but Hong Kong becomes mostly a Chinese focused city rather than rather than the rest of us that start using Singapore and, and Tokyo and, and to some extent Taipei uh, as as your as your approach into into the developing area of Southeast Asia. And, and so Hong Kong gets gets left by the wayside. It becomes it becomes an entrepot for for Chinese goods still, but it, it becomes much less much less of a, a, a center of the financial world, I think. You know, you know the the Chinese have been, you know, to to the observer, pretty. Mm, I mean, the Chinese government, PRC, Xi Jinping, they're pretty nasty about Hong Kong. And maybe they they had good policy reasons, and they didn't want to have any more umbrella movements because they thought that would be something that would catch on fire in other Chinese cities. Yeah. <clears throat> but um, you know, that it didn't help their brand very much, and uh, it didn't help their their image in the world among countries and multinationals that make decisions on the basis of that brand. So it strikes yeah. me that, you know, they didn't help themselves financially on that. Well, again, you know, their view, their view, and they very much push this as their narrative that, that we don't care because, because we see Hong Kong as becoming the hub for Chinese financing. You know, so so they see, and like I said, it's almost it's almost a one for one replacement. As as the multinationals move out, the Chinese companies move in. As the focus on on money moving into China reduces, the amount of money moving through Hong Kong into the rest of the world becomes more important. And so that's that's I think that's the Chinese view is that yeah. that's that's why they don't they don't care. But they one, don't other, care. one other point I want to make is is the impact it's had on in Taiwan. You know, this this whole idea of one system, one country, two systems was always the thing that, that the Chinese pushed to Taiwan. Well, once once the you know, the whole national security law happened in 2020, you don't ever have to try to talk one country, two systems in Taiwan again. You know, even even the, the, the supporters of the mainland in, in Taiwan have heard that message loud and clear. It's 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 one system. <laughs> yep. Clear enough. So a couple of years ago, before COVID, <clears throat> there was a panel program downtown here in Honolulu. Um, and it was organized by some people from China, you know, Chinese people here in Hawaii. Um, and uh, the subject was Belt, Belt and Road. And uh, there were Chinese investors and, and non-Chinese investors that, that came actually from around the country uh, mm -hmm. to this program. And they were all there because they felt that they could funnel money into Belt and Road and make money. And it was, you know, a great opportunity that China was not limiting itself to, you know, the funding from the government or from government controlled, um, you know, agencies uh, uh, in, in China. But um, it was trying to draw capital from everywhere. And this program that I saw um, 
you know, re reflected that. They came from all over the US and Asia to talk about how you invest in Belt Road and how you make money doing that with the help, with the, you know, the, the permission so to speak, of, the, of the Chinese government, which was running Belt, which is running Belt Road. So I guess my question is, uh, gee, you know, if, if you're a money guy, and you're making investments from wherever you are, and you see that um, th these changes are happening in Hong Kong, uh, that may change your way of looking at making investments in Hong Kong, or rather in Belt and Road, because I think, you got to correct me if I'm wrong, that Hong Kong was also a portal for investing European, American money in Belt and Road. So if that's closed off or changed in some way, does that change Belt and Road? Uh, I, I, I'm not sure I follow, but I, I think, I don't think so. Remember, you know, you have, the China has also set up the Asia, Asia Infrastructure, Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, AI, AIIB. Yes. You know, to go along with Belt and Road. And so, yes. so I think in, in some ways, you know, Beijing has, <clears throat> anticipated moving away from Hong Kong as a finance center, that it sees it sees more advantage to, to actually controlling it better out of Beijing. And so the AIB and, and, and Belt and Road Initiative have taken, taken some of that financing away from Hong Kong in, in that sense. So I think that that it, it it yeah it changes the calculus about Hong Kong, but it's not so much that China is concerned about that. Again, I you know I think I think it sees Hong Kong as as its avenue to the world rather than Hong Kong as uh, the world's avenue to Beijing. Last area I want to ask you about is um, you know Hong Kong was a very attractive tourist destination and it had some hotels and features and things that drew people from around the world. It was mm -hmm. exotic. Uh, it was magnetic. I don't think it's like that anymore. Honestly, they have violence in the street, people got, you know, wounded and killed in the umbrella movement and so forth. And now you have that, um, you know, sort of the Eastern European pale of oppression on everything. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, tourism must be way down, just as flights are way down. Well, yeah. And, and, and you know, I know people who lived in Hong Kong who say, I, I can't go back there. On the other hand, I know people who lived in China and say, I can't go back there. Um, I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm afraid. And, I, and the fear is a valid fear. So my question is, would you go back there? Uh, I, I'm telling you now, I would not go back there, but I'm wondering if you would. Yeah, I, I probably would like to go back to Hong Kong just to see what, how, how it has changed. Because you, like I said, you can't really see anymore what, what's happening because you don't you don't get the real story. You're, you're getting a, a very filtered story at this point. So it would be interesting to go back just if, to, to understand how the Hong Kongers have actually reacted to all of this. But I don't think I would go for a very long time. I think it would be a very short stay. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me assure you that we 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 will we will not ask you um, to do a think tech talk show while you were in Hong Kong. Oh, you were in Hong Kong. This would not be advisable. Good. <laughs> <laughs> the world changes, Carl. It's changing around us, and and we have to um, you know follow the sea changes. And the changes happen on the surface. They happen underneath. They happen all around. 
and um, it's 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 fantastic. It's fabulous. It's, it's so interesting to to spot these changes today because they seem to me to be happening faster than before. Yeah, yeah. And what we remember of of Hong Kong is some nostalgia, and and that is going to be we're going to be disabused of that nostalgia i think if we do go back and and look around i think you'll you'll see less and less uh, western influence in that city yeah well thank you carl it's, it's great to uh, talk with you about this and to get a, a handle on it <clears throat> and um i i suppose after this discussion if we did go back we would we would have our eyes would be wide open <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Carl Baker, uh, Senior Advisor of Pacific Forum, uh, joins us every now and then on Global Connections. Thank you so much. Thank you. Aloha.